we haven't forgotten. We're going to say that to the end and allow that to give us an opportunity to respond to what God wants to speak to us through his word about. But, um, let's just pray and I'll explain a little bit more. Here's my drink. Lord Jesus, once again we just want to thank you that there is no one truly like you. You alone are worthy. We give you all the glory because there's no one like you. We love you, Lord, and as we just spend some time in your word now, your revealed word, inspired through your Holy Spirit, Lord, may each one of us, we receive something from you that we can act upon, something that bears fruit. Lord, we just thank you so much that you chose not to just to come dwell amongst us, but to die for us to live again for us, to continue interceding for us now as your people and also to continue to speak to us through your spirit and through your word. So please, Lord, we ask you, open our hearts and our ears that you might do that, Lord. Amen. Yeah, part of the reason why it's a good idea that we're going to have some bread and wine later, allow that as a time of response, is that this morning we're going to, I know we started Matthew last week, we're going to put Matthew on pause just for a week. We had to swap around because David and Margaret are their grandson's dedication this morning, so we had to swap around. He was going to be starting Matthew this week. So this is another little pause button this week. When, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, John answered a question from one of those cards we handed out asking for ideas of what sort of things you'd like us to speak on from the front here. One of those questions was, what happens when I die? Which I thought John dealt with very, very well a couple of weeks ago, as much as you ever can in 30, 40 minutes. And uh, we're going to look at one more of those questions this morning, um, I'm going to give myself a bit of space. I like a bit of walking space. I'm going to trip over things. Yeah? But the trouble is, in answering these questions, things can come across a little bit dry. It can feel like a bit like a college lecture rather than a preach for us today. We're simply trying to answer, answer a question. So part of what we're going to try and do is, is allow our time of bread and wine and communion and fellowship with our Jesus, just allow it to become something real. It's not just information answering a question. It's real, it bears relevance for us here and now, and we can always apply whatever we learn from the Word into our lives. But um, many questions arise regarding the Bible, don't they? It's, it's, we think it's clear-cut, and it is at the end of the day, but sometimes the more you dig deeper, the more questions arise, which you need to try and get our heads around. And there's all sorts of things that we're, Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, don't always agree on. Interpretation of end times, you know, you're talking about Revelation just now. Some people's understanding of that is always very different. You get concepts of whether, how old the earth is. Old earth and young earth doctrine and things like that. Does a day in Genesis 1 really mean 24 hours and things like that? Divine election, were, were we, what does it mean that we were chosen before time began? These kind of things, we can all still fellowship together, be brothers and sisters together and not always necessarily agree on. At the end of the day, those things specifically don't matter. What it boils down to the things that do matter. We like to use the terms closed-hand and open-handed doctrines. Closed-handed doctrines, the Trinity. We as leadership at Beacon Church will never, ever, ever let go of that. <laughs> ever. The Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three-part, triune God. That's a closed-hand doctrine. Justification by faith alone. It's nothing we've done that saves us. The only works that we are saved through are his works the only work of man that will ever be in heaven, ever, are the marks on his body. <laughs> Everything else is put to dust. We only get there by him, by faith in him. 
The virgin birth, something we'll never let go of. Christ's resurrection from the dead is something we'll never let go of. These are closed-hand doctrines. But you can also have what we would necessarily call open-handed doctrines, things we can agree to disagree on, like how old is the earth is, use of alcohol, or can a Christian have a tattoo, or all sorts of things, really. These are... Hard in mind. These... These are things we can agree to disagree on. At the end of the day, we should never let these open-handed doctrines allow us to divide. They are things we can discuss, but never divide over. The question of can I lose my salvation is a question I'm going to attempt to answer this morning. For some people, that can be a quite a simple, they don't worry about it. Other people can really worry about it. Because sometimes the Bible appears to contradict itself on subjects such as this. In many ways, this is kind of an open-handed doctrine. If you feel, yes, you can lose your salvation and somebody else feels, no, you can't, you should never allow that to divide you. It's just something you should just agree to disagree on. But, although it ends in that respect, an open-handed doctrine, we as leadership here feel feel strongly about this to spend some time unpacking it, looking at it and reassure you as well. I just want to reassure you there is security in Christ and I will explain why. But the trouble why this can be is sometimes a grey area for some is that the Bible talks about eternal life. <coughs> eternal life. With him forever. When does that end? Never. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing shall separate, separate us from the love of God. The Bible quite clearly says that in those words, doesn't it? It's about grace, not works. It's about his undeserved favour, nothing we've done that allows us to be his. And then the Bible says, you hear Jesus in Revelation 3 talking about, I will spit you out of my mouth because you're being lukewarm. And um, talks about the unforgivable sin. I'll forgive all of that, but I'll never forgive that. It's like, well, what if I've committed that? And some people get a bit confused. Some of you might not be confused, some of you might be. But this is the kind of thing we're going to look at this morning. Trouble is, like I say, these can come across quite dry when you're trying to answer this kind of question. Sometimes it's best for a coffee chat for half an hour and look through some stuff. But I want to spend some time this morning for the sake of all of us, so we all know what the Bible says on this subject. I don't want to just throw information at you. Because it'd be like, oh, Steve, don't throw me any more information. You're going to push out all those important pin numbers and then I'll be in trouble and I won't get any money out of the bank and things like that. Oh, we're, going to, we're going to have a bit of history this morning, share a little bit of history, some famous names from church history. We're going to uh, look at a couple of graphics in a minute. We're going to go quite deep in some places. We're going to keep it light in others. Some of the stuff you might have heard of heard before, even the gospel. I've heard, I've heard the gospel before. Do I need you to hear it again? Yes. Because at the end of the day, we always need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. It's in the light of that, again, we carry on living the life that is expectant from him. The, I was just thinking this morning, if our lives don't truly demonstrate the power of the gospel, and sometimes it doesn't, then we need to be reminded of the gospel, don't we? No matter how long you've been a Christian. But we're going to go a bit deeper as well. There may be some stuff that might still confuse you. I'm figuring, actually, this will probably open up a bit of dialogue afterwards as well. Come back to me with emails, phone calls, pop round, we'll go out for a coffee, whatever. We'll talk this through. I just want to put your minds at rest this morning. First of all, can we have the first slide up, Alex? It's a little bit, I don't know if I need to turn this off a little bit. A little bit blurry. Loads of arcs from one point to the other. You see them all? As much as you ever can. This was done recently by a guy called Sam Harris. He's an American guy. He's been writing a whole load of books. He's loved by secularists. He's Mr. Anti-Religion, Mr. Anti-Christianity, etc., etc. These are showing 439 alleged contradictions in the Bible. I say alleged because that's all they are. 
for he's saying this bit of the Bible says that and yet that one over there says the opposite. And he's coming out with all these things. All of these are answerable. They have been answered before. They are alleged contradictions. This is not new. But people are jumping on it and go, oh, look, see, the Bible's a load of rubbish. It just wraps up old claims which have been explained before. I just want to put your mind at rest. Sometimes we can, in conversation, with people, oh, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Answer that then. And they just take the pin out and drop this hand grenade in your lap and walk away. And you're like, How? You, you can never argue with people like that, can you? It's not that we'd ever argue, but at least debate, do you know what I mean? These contradictions are misinformed. They are not contradictions. They're explained well elsewhere. They are not a threat to the Bible's validity. They just appear as contradictions, but we should always, always, always read the Bible in context of the rest of Scripture. They do make sense, okay? Can we have the next slide? That was the 439 alleged contradictions. These are the 63,779 cross-references in the Bible where the Bible proves itself. Okay, that part of the Bible says that and that part of the Bible says exactly the same later on. 16, nearly 17,000 cross-references in the Bible. The Bible is self-affirming, okay, just to put your minds at rest. It is the living word of God. Even just outside of the Bible, the Bible proves itself. Jesus prophesied about the temple being destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's not written in the Bible, 70 AD, it was destroyed. Some of the um, stuff that Daniel prophesied talks about empires rising and falling, which outside of the Bible, in historical records, you can see those empires coming and going just as prophesied. The Bible self-affirms itself. Remember, the Bible is written by over 40 different authors in three different languages across the known world at the time over a period of 1,500 years. And yet somehow, strangely enough, they all seem to agree with each other. Okay? The Bible is perfectly self-affirming. Never get frightened when people try and throw the old contradiction argument at you. Saying that, can I lose my salvation as a question can come across as a bit of a contradiction when the Bible says one thing on one hand and appears to say something else on the next hand. The dangers of just making a quick assumption of an answer to this question, can I lose my salvation, there are dangers to either side. Can I lose my salvation? Yes, I can. Then means we end up getting terrified of losing our salvation frantically trying to make sure we've got enough lists of all the do's we should be doing and enough lists of all the don'ts we shouldn't be doing, frightened of slipping up. And all you're, all you're doing straight away, you step back into law again, putting to one side everything that Jesus has done for you, which means it's not about the law. It's not about the do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with him, and the fruit of that is which you live a life where you do and don't things that honour him. But you're not going to slip up. But you can get frightened if you start thinking, yes, I can lose my salvation, we start getting into this law thing again. The other danger of saying, can I lose my salvation? No, you can't. Because then there's an abuse there sometimes where people can go too far the other way and go, I'm saved, I can do what I like now. I can go off and enjoy myself, do my things like the rest of the world, get drunk, have sex, take drugs, do what I want, doesn't matter because I'm saved anyway, I've got my insurance policy. Dangerous, abusive, dishonouring God and you're probably not saved if you're acting like that, <laughs> to be honest. Absolutely. Very, very, you'll be very, very careful. We need to apply a bit of wisdom here. Can we have the final slide and we'll leave that up? Thanks, Alex. Can I lose my salvation? A little bit of history. Even if you don't realise it, quite often we can find ourselves inadvertently, sometimes wavering, into one of two general camps that have grown over the years through the Reformed Church. When the church broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Church as we know it, they kind of out of that kind of grew two kind of camps called Arminists and Calvinists. Don't worry about remembering all these names. 
I mean, sometimes we can find ourselves inadvertently adhering to one or other doctrine without realising too much about the history of it. Just to put a bit of context in, there's a guy called John Calvin. Right, he's the long, flowy beard guy. Okay, there's two guys. One's got a long, flowy beard. The other one's got a short, neat, pointy beard. Okay, they're the two guys. Calvin, long, flowy beard guy, lived in the 16th century. A French guy. When he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church because of his understanding of Bible doctrine and didn't feel they were adhering to that, broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. The way things were then, of course, he had to run away. He had to flee, flee the country. He was in trouble. He went to Switzerland. Finally, ended up in Geneva. This guy was completely sold out, completely convinced that the Bible is completely positive, affirming on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God is always in charge, always has been, always will be. He's not a weak God, and he always believed about divine election. God chose us before the world began. Calvin was completely sold on these. And including that, this is understanding that the Bible declares that salvation is eternally secured. When you are saved, when you're genuinely saved, you are his forever. And he called it, that doctrine, perseverance of the saints, which we'll look at in a minute. The other camp, Mr. <coughs> neat, pointy, short beard guy, was Jacobus Arminius. He was born just shortly before Calvin died, so they kind of overlapped, but didn't really, they didn't hang out together, put it that way. But he, did actually learn, he was actually taught under Calvin's son-in-law. But Jacobus Arminius, he rejected all of Calvin's teachings, did not believe the Bible said that. And he taught, amongst other things, absolute free will of man. It is down to us whether we are saved or not because we choose to accept Christ's offer. We are not wooed necessarily. God doesn't call us. God doesn't choose us before time began. It's down to us. The, the offer is on the table. It's entirely down to us whether we accept that or not. It's completely about free will. Which then leads to the concern, though, if I chose to give that, could I decide to then hand it, to take that offer up, can I then choose to hand it back again? There's a whole, once you start opening up that kind of can of worms, you start raising other questions as well. Best way to look at it, hyper-Arminians, this side, don't they? Pointy beards. Hyper-Arminians, really strict Arminian people would say, I gave my life to Jesus, and that's what it's all about. They still honour him as king. Do you know what I mean? I'm not disrespecting them, but their understanding of salvation is that I gave my life to Jesus. Whereas Calvin, long flowy beard, Jesus saved me. Do you see the difference? Still salvation, it's just a different way of understanding what the Bible says on the subject. The reality is, is actually somewhere down the middle. The Bible isn't Arminian, and the Bible isn't Calvinist. The Bible is the Bible. Never forget that. These are understandings, perspectives of what the Bible says. Actually, the Bible is somewhere down the middle. If you want to, you call yourself an Armino Calvinist or a Calminian or something. Somewhere down the middle. The truth is this. God is sovereign, always has been, always will be. He's in charge. He'll never let go. And man has a responsibility in how we play in that as well. It's a mystery. You can't always work out how those two quite fit together. That's part of the mystery of God. We'll allow him to work that out. The truth is we have a responsibility. We can't say, well, he's sovereign, so I can do what I like because whatever I do has already been planned by him and I can just go off and be a puppet, be a thunderbird or something. But it's our responsibility to play a part in sharing the gospel, being good husbands and wives, being good brothers and sisters, being good employees, honouring him in all we do, 
and also accepting the fact that he's in control and he's our king and he knows exactly what's going on and he's planned stuff for us. Does that make sense? Okay. Before we move on to perseverance in the saints, let me explain where that term came from. And then we're going to look at a few verses that uphold what it says. We'll also look at a couple of these seeming contradictions as well before we wrap it up. Okay. The teaching of Jacobus Arminius, short pointy beer guy, calls Calvin's followers, the long flowy people, calls them to, write, to come up with what they believe were the five core doctrines of the Bible, just to defend their position. And they come up with five core doctrines. Don't have to remember all these, but they spell out the word tulip. So you've got total depravity, which means that sin affects every single part of us. Unconditional election, God chose us, not for any condition, not because of anything about you that's extra special, just because he chose to choose you. Limited atonement, that Christ's work on the cross was for those he chose. Irresistible grace. God's grace is so overwhelming. When he calls us, he woos us so much. There comes a point when we're just called into his family. You can't resist him because he's God. His grace is amazing. And the perseverance of the saints. Of the saints. If you're saved, you will persevere. And you can trust in that. This is what they said. Unfortunately, I don't agree with those totally. I won't explain why. That's told for another series of sermons. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. That L is a little bit wonky. There's a bit more to it than that. The Christ's work on the cross affects more than just the people he saves. I believe it indirectly affects the world as well. But that's a whole other story. But inevitably, these are Calvin's followers, not Calvin who came up with these five points. Calvin's followers, inevitably, they were a little bit squiffy and didn't quite get things spot on. But that's what they did to, just to defend their position. But the P, perseverance of the saints... There's something that we certainly here would stand firm on. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Those who are truly saved will, by God's grace, persevere to the end. Salvation is a gift. And if you got what you don't deserve, you can't undeserve it. Think about it. If God has given us we and our, that T, total depravity, if sin has affected every part of our being, which it has, if that's the case, we definitely don't deserve salvation, do we? we know, I, know, I know we know that. Therefore, I'll put the lights back on now, I just realised. Therefore, we definitely got what we don't deserve. That's the point of grace. Grace is undeserved favour. Therefore, we can't undeserve it. Otherwise, it defeats the object of it being undeserved favour. Mark Driscoll puts it this way. He says, we don't keep our salvation because we work really hard, because we try really hard, because we walk really faithfully, and because we have it all together. Because we haven't, have we? Christians, the Bible does teach, do persevere with God, but it's because God perseveres with them. We are able to persevere because our Father perseveres on our behalf as well. Famous verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We have been called and he works on our behalf for the good of us who love him. Perseverance of the saints as a doctrine doesn't mean we won't sin again, because we do. We're human beings, we still sin, we still fall. But it does mean that he is at work to sanctify us, to make us holy, to enable us to grow and to become more and more like him. And he's looking out for us to keep us safe. And he'll never stop doing that. Never. Ask for a bit of advice. Our Amy. 
Most people think she's a bit of a darling. I know you do. But she's a kid. She's a human kid at that, in case you hadn't noticed. Therefore, she has her moments. Mum's giggling. She has her moments, as kids do. Sometimes she's had huge great tantrums, she's not getting her way, and she's not seeing things from our point of view, and she just thinks we're just being vindictive, because that's what we like. She's even told us she hates us at times. At what point do we draw the line and disown her? Sure? Sure? Absolutely, of course we're not. Sometimes in this fallen world we do hear about people disowning their kids. It's very sad, it's very rare, but it does happen. I'm never going to let go of my girl. Of course I'm not, she's my daughter. It's this gift that God's given me to look after. She's on loan. and He, gave, he, he chose us to look after her. Isn't that amazing? We're not going to let go of her. But in that we still have to discipline her. We want her to, be, to grow up, to be a, be a lovely, man-honouring, and even more importantly, God-honouring girl. A woman of God who loves him with all her heart, lives for him with all her heart. We've got to help teach her into that until she can see it for herself. So we discipline her. We, we even persist with reading at night when she doesn't want to, she's too tired and she's grumpy and throws the book across the room because she can't be bothered and she's only read two words so far. And I was like, darling, if you want to be able to read these, all these books on your shelf, we're going to help you to learn to read. So we, pers- we persist in that. We persevere on her behalf. We put money away every month for her. Even when she's got the right hunt with us, I don't stop putting that money away every month for her, for future reference, do I? I keep persevering on her, her behalf. Jenny and I plan fun days out. We're currently planning a big special birthday present for her for her birthday in a couple of weeks' time. She has no idea what it is and I can't wait to see the look on her face. Even if tomorrow she tells me she hates me again, I'm not going to change my mind and stop doing it. I'm going to still carry on planning that because I want to bless her. She's my daughter. If we as human parents feel that about our children, imagine how our Heavenly Father who is good and does good, Psalm 1968, he's good and he does good. Imagine how he feels about us. Never forget that. Let's look at three scriptures that uphold this. You can turn if you want to, if not, don't worry. Philippians 1, verse 6. It'll be Philippians chapter 1 and then it'll be Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 3 after that. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will. Can you see any get-out clauses in that? Any ifs or buts? Of course not. He is faithful. And our maturity grows from knowing that whatever is going on right now, he is at work on our behalf and he will never let us go. What he began, he will see to completion. Full stop. That's what it says. Another one then, Hebrews chapter 10. A little bit further on. Hebrews 10, 14. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever... When does forever stop? Never. For while one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It doesn't mean we are perfect. We still sin. So when it says we have been made perfect, that means he sees us in Jesus' clothing. 
He sees us through Jesus. We're wearing his robes of righteousness. He lived the perfect life so that we can be recognised as if we already have as well. We still sin, we still slip up. That's what it means by being made perfect. But then we are being made holy. He is persevering on our behalf, teaching us through circumstance, through discipline sometimes. Sometimes we've got a bit of growing up to do. Sometimes we rant and we have tantrums. We may not tell him we hate him, but we can feel about that sometimes. In fact, we do say we hate him by the fact that we go off and do our own thing. Saying the same thing. We can have tantrums sometimes, can't we? But he's doing that to discipline us and to teach us and he's persevering with us for our good. Forever. Be made perfect forever. Then Hebrews 3, verses 13 to 14. Hebrews 3, 13 to 14. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, that would be every day then, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This is one that can throw up a little bit of a question mark. Let's go, if we hold on to our original conviction, therefore, if we don't, does that mean we lose our salvation? This is where the question comes in. There's a bit of a misunderstanding of that word, if, there. The writer is speaking, the writer to the Hebrews is speaking to the visible church. Now let me explain this. You've got the visible and the invisible church. Let me explain. The visible church, everybody who attends church, who are part of a church community, attend the services, hang out around each other's homes. The visible church are the people you see gathering. doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of those people is saved. Be aware of that. It's true, isn't it? People who can profess, I'm not just talking about visitors who say they're just searching, but people who say they're Christians may not be, sometimes. The visible church are the people that we see gathering as God's people, as far as we can see. The invisible church are the people amongst that who are genuinely saved. The invisible church are the ones that see, that God sees as his people. Does that make sense? Yeah? Do you understand that? The visible church are the people that we see gathering as his people. The invisible church are the people that God sees amongst them as his people. Going to church does not make you a Christian, just as much as going to quick fit every Saturday makes you a mechanic. It doesn't. Okay? Same thing. So here, the writer of the Hebrews is speaking to the visible church and he's saying, don't assume you're saved. Don't take it for granted. Don't be arrogant about that. Outward works and kindness don't mean you're saved. Are your outward works, are they fueled by a heart for Jesus or are they fueled by a heart for duty and putting on a good face and being liked by people? Sometimes it could be, couldn't it? And sometimes people can do that and not actually realise they're not in a position where they're actually saved in the first place. What is going on inside will eventually become evident on the outside. Those that are truly saved will persevere if we hold on to our original conviction. That original conviction is our genuine repentance and dependence on Jesus. That's our original conviction. Genuine believers will persevere because they, we, see the bigger picture of God's grace versus visible things. Even when we see what's going on in our lives, remember Hebrews 11, talking about faith, we still see the bigger picture and we trust him. So we will persevere. And we are able to persevere because he perseveres for us. Trust him, he's a good God, he's our loving father. And the writer to Hebrews 
to the, to, the, to the Hebrew church. He's warning readers here not to be complacent, but to be certain of our original conviction. What is your original conviction? If indeed you had such, what was that? Remember it. Trust it. So this leads us to look at a couple of question marks about the subject, a couple of seeming contradictions related to this subject. Remember the Hebrew writer, the writer to Hebrews, he's just told us to be certain of and hold fast to our original conviction. So therefore when Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 says, I'm going to spit you out because you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. What's he saying there? Who's he talking to? It's exactly the same thing. Have a look at Revelation 3, verse 14. Revelation 3, 14 to 16 it will be. Let's read those words and see what he's saying. Verse 14 is right into Jesus' speaking through the prophet John to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. So he's seeing into the heart. He knows what fuels their deeds. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus, the ruler of all things, saying that to the church in Laodicea. It's pretty frightening. The nearby river in Laodicea was muddy and undrinkable. And the nearby aqueduct was so far away from the town, but because of the geography the water had to run through to reach the town, by the time it reached the town, it was lukewarm. So Jesus is using natural geography of the area to teach them in a picture that they understand what he's trying to get across to them. There's nothing wrong with being cold here in this passage. It doesn't mean being cold to Jesus, hard-hearted to Jesus. Cold water is a good thing. It's refreshing. They had, all, they, all the town had was lukewarm water from this horrible aqueduct because they couldn't drink from the river. It was lukewarm. Oh, they'd have died for a refreshing cold cup of water, wouldn't they? Cold is a good thing. And hot is, warms you up in the winter, isn't it? We like, we like teas and coffees and mulled wine or whatever. We, we like warm drinks. Being cold or hot doesn't matter. Both of those are good. That's, Jesus isn't saying that it's all right if you turn away from me and be hard-hearted. He's not saying that about cold. He's saying cold is a good thing. It's refreshing. He says, I wish you were hold, cut or hold, but you're neither. You're just lukewarm. You're apathetic. You're indifferent. You're complacent. And you're making assumptions that aren't true. So he's actually speaking there to the visible church. Don't assume you're one of mine. Because some of you aren't holding fast. Some of you are being complacent and just assuming you're saved and yet still living your own little lives during the rest of the week. When he says, I will spit you out, the actual Greek word means vomit. And just as our bodies can't tolerate rancid food, God can't tolerate deceit, sin, hypocrisy. He can't tolerate it. Jesus can't tolerate it. So he's speaking to the visible church, the ones that we with our human eyes can see, and saying, some of you aren't hot, warming up, full of passion or energy. Some of you aren't cold, you're refreshing to each other and to the world outside. Some of you are just complacent and just assuming you're saved. You're the ones I'm going to spit out. They're the ones who will say to you, and the day he comes and they say, Lord, Lord, he'll say, I never knew you. 
Sorry. He's not sorry. <laughs> not sorry. I never knew you. That's who he's talking to. He's not talking to people who are genuinely saved. Okay? Next question. What about the unforgivable sin? Turn to Luke chapter 12. We'll look at this and we'll look at one more passage that will wrap things up. And then we'll spend some time with him again. Luke 12 verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, himself, will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Let's read that again. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So he's saying, well, everyone who speaks against me, eventually at some point you might turn to me, I'll forgive you. You can be mine. Someone who's been blaspheming him, taking his name in vain, living against his ways and his wants most of their lives. That's all of us until we're saved, isn't it? He'll forgive them. He'll forgive us. That's fine. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he will never forgive. So he's saying, you can do all of this, do anything you like. If you do that, I'll never forgive you. This is one of the most debated and misunderstood of Jesus' sayings, to be honest. He says, he'll forgive anything you do except that. Does that make you scared or frightened? Because don't, don't be. Don't be. Because if that really bothers you, then you haven't done it, to be honest. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit is here to convict us and point us to Jesus. That's what he does. That's how God calls us. By his Holy Spirit. John 15 and John 16 says that. He is here to convict us and to point us to Jesus, always. The Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. Everything. Everything points us to Jesus. Through our consciences, through, you know, through relationship with him, touches our heart, doesn't he? He gives us a prod through his word. He wrote it in the first place. He inspired the human writers. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God-breathed, isn't it? <coughs> to resist that conviction, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, is a lifelong commitment to resisting that, to not letting him in. So anyone who resists the Holy Spirit's conviction, that is all about Jesus, anyone who resists that, with a lifelong commitment to that, you're never letting him in, never letting him in, there's going to come a point when you're not going to be forgiven. That's what God can't forgive. If you, if you, don't, if you don't let him in, he's not going to wait until you die and then there's a second chance. Once you're dead, you're dead. Or once he's come again, it's over. There's no second chances. You've got this life and that's it. So to resist him, die, and then go, all right, yeah, so you're real now. Okay, yeah, I'll accept you. Too late. You've resisted the Holy Spirit all that time. See, other verses in the Bible also speak about having people who've associated with the Holy Spirit, partaken of the Holy Spirit, been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. These aren't people who are necessarily saved because it talks about false teachers who should know better and so on. These these aren't people who are are saved. These are people who've merely tasted of the Holy Spirit indirectly through the body. Not people who've embraced the Holy Spirit to have been associated with the Holy Spirit, to have partaken of, to be enlightened by, means you can appreciate the benefits of it, still not actually be saved. 
So just as perseverance of the saints is a change of heart that remains, sometimes we fall away a bit, but he woos us back because we're his. He perseveres on our behalf. We continue as a result to persevere. Just as that is a change of heart that perseveres, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a closed heart that perseveres. Ultimately, there's going to come a point it's going to go enough. That's it, you've had your chance. And that is humanity in one of two camps. You either embrace Jesus as your saviour at some point, or you don't. It's the sheep and the goats, isn't it? One or two camps. You're in the family or you're not by the end of things. That's the unforgivable sin. It's rejecting him until it's too late to embrace him. Okay? So don't be frightened about having, have I ever blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Have I ever shouted when I've hit my finger with a hammer? Oh, Holy Spirit! You know, we can start worrying about silly things like that. It's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a persistent ignorance and rejection of him. So, once saved, always saved. In fact, as my mate Rob Shillito puts, we should reword that, if saved, always saved. Amen. Absolutely. We've got to be very, very careful. Never assume... Don't beat yourself up Goes, oh no, he's telling me I've never assumed I'm saved, but am I saved now? If you've got a heart for Jesus, if you feel that poke when you've done wrong and you know you've got to do something about it, even if you put that off for another week and you haven't kept yourself right before God, <laughs> oh, I'm st- yeah, I know I've done wrong, but I'm going to persist in it a bit longer, but you know you're feeling that prod and you poke and you come back to him and say, I'm sorry, I've let you down again. When you want to please him, when the thought of having spent the next however many years of your life having let him down rather than lived in every way, taken up the purposes he's put before you, if the thought of that horrifies you, you're saved. <laughs> if that bothers you, if you want to please him, you're saved. Romans 10.9, Gospel Simples. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. So don't beat yourself up about it either. Okay? Let me put your minds at rest one more time. John chapter 10, final passage we're going to look at. John chapter 10, verse 25. Just trust your Father. Once you're His, you're His, all, you're his forever. Just be sure you're His. Just praying a prayer and doing good doesn't mean you're saved. I know lots of people have done that, fallen away. I'm not convinced they're saved in the first place. When you, you know in your heart, when it bothers you that you might not be saved, you can trust that. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. He's talking to the local Jews in Jerusalem. See, the visible church, effectively. People who think they're saved. Not necessarily. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. This is God's alleged people, the Jews. I assume they're saved. He says, you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's two hands there. I and the Father are one. 
No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And no one includes you. You can think, oh yeah, other people could, oh, the devil could steal me away, oh, but, but as long as I keep close. And, or, oh yeah, but, but no, one, no, one can, no one can steal me away, but I could get it wrong though. No one includes you. See, seeming contradictions in the Bible are not as they appear. It does not say you're always his in one breath and you can lose it in another. Be assured. It's always good to examine ourselves. We need to. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to take it seriously. But just like the Jews here, in chapter 10 that we just read, it says, some of you think you're okay, but some of you aren't. You've got to be sure. You've got to be sure. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. What we talked about last week at our family connections, weren't we? The Holy Spirit is the endorsement and the affirmation of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 says, You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, a guarantee of our inheritance. That guarantee, the Greek word is arabon, it means a down payment or further payments to come. It's not just a one-off. So when he says be filled with the Holy Spirit, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, keep receiving more. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit in you, so receive more. And the fruit of your life and the witness to your heart, you'll know you're saved. And it will reaffirm over and over again that you'll never lose that either. Always, always, always read the Bible in the context of the rest of the Bible. Remember those graphics I showed you earlier? But be encouraged. If you are saved, you are his forever. If you worry about being saved, your hunger will either affirm the fact that you are or lead you into salvation anyway. Okay? Just don't be complacent. Don't be lukewarm about it. Don't be apathetic about it. Take it seriously. Those are the people he spits out. We need to pray for those people. Trust that they'll come to salvation. Speak to them. Warn them. If you're his, you're his forever. If you're not, come and speak to me. John, David, Julian... Red, Gloria, she'll sort you out. Let's spend some time with him. Julian, do you want to uh, lead us through a time of bread and wine? Let's fellowship with our Jesus, who saved us, who secured us, out of whose hand we can never be snatched. <laughs> Ivan and Sarah, we'll, we'll go and get the others. Ivan and Sarah. Okay, you've done it that way. Oh, brilliant, okay. Let's just be thankful for what he's done. His perfect life that we couldn't live. And his death that he died, that we deserved. His resurrection that secured that for eternity. His Holy Spirit that is within us. Who dwells in us. Keep receiving more. Journey's going to lead us through a song. We're going to sing, then we're going to pray. And allow for some time of if you want prayer for anything, anything at all, more of the Holy Spirit for healing, ministry for anything. But let's just start by giving him thanks, remembering what he's done, remembering that we're his forever. Go for Julie. Excuse me.
It's good, isn't it? Just to allow just a minute to let that soak in. Don't want to race on to the next thing. Just let it soak in. With family, and um, and um, as Steve encouraged us to be filled, filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled again with the Holy Spirit. And um, as we come and take bread and wine, we're reminded of the sacrifice that our wonderful Jesus made for us, who we were just worshiping earlier, and the the blood that He shed, <laughs> that perfect spotless lamb of God it's quite remarkable that he shed his blood to set us free and he's now alive (laughs) raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the father and he has given us the Holy Spirit so as we take uh, take the bread and wine some of us may have done it hundreds of times before Let's just thank God again for his goodness and his kindness and the salvation which we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we're going to sing, Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. I'll ask Ivan to Julia and take the bread bread around. And then we'll pass the uh, glasses around. We'll, We'll drink together. And then there'll be an opportunity for us to pray for one another. Maybe just uh, where we're sitting. And um, if, like me, you want to be prayed for for healing, then um, we'll, uh, we'll gather after that at the front. Anyone else that wants to be prayed for healing or to be filled again with the Holy Spirit? Because some of us were filled afresh last Sunday, but let's be filled again this Sunday. So, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Holy Spirit, you are welcome.